Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. In the pre-pandemic age, and that does seem an awful long time ago, uh, one of the most useful concepts for making sense of our technocentric culture was the notion of the attention economy. Uh, The big platforms of Silicon Valley monetized our attention, and we got more and more distracted. It wasn't a very good deal, but we all seem more and more addicted, or we all are more and more addicted to the platforms of Twitter and Facebook and all the rest. So in the pandemic, of course, we're using technology more and more. So uh, the great question is, what becomes of attention uh, in in, in the pandemic age, in which we're all glued to our Zooms and, and, and other devices. Uh, Casey Schwartz is a New York City-based author. She's the, uh, she's the author of last year's sensation, Attention, A Love Story. Um, and uh, she just wrote a really interesting piece for LitHub in their 2020 collection of relevant pieces, choosing a return to attention. So, Casey, what becomes of attention in the age of the pandemic? Andrew, I'm making a sort of counterintuitive argument that we're even as our world is getting more and more virtual, and we're probably going to be more and more dependent on screens than ever before for at least the next year. I think we might actually see a desire to reclaim some kind of cognitive autonomy and move away from our screens um, when we're not using them for specific purposes. I already see that happening in my own life. You write uh, about your experience walking around uh, New York City. Uh, You seem to, your attention at least, seems to be gripped by things which maybe you wouldn't have have noticed before the pandemic. Absolutely. I mean, anyone who's been in New York City for the bulk of this experience knows what a sort of hideous, horrifying, frightening, but kind of also, you know, memorable and interesting time this has been because, you know, we're just seeing our city through a lens we've never applied to it before. And I've been just every afternoon, I have this this baby, this baby boy who was born in December, and just to stay sort of sane. He a and real I, baby. I, I assume this is a real baby case. You're not a virtual baby. one, right? <laughs> a better than real baby. And he and I just walk around and just sort of, I just, I try to keep track of the most surreal details happening to us in this corona age. You know, the perfectly set for dinner tables at the restaurant on the corner you know, whatever it is, um, the sort of fancy jazz music playing at the upscale grocery store, just making a list and tuning in just as acutely as I can, because it feels so good to just get away from from my screen 
and actually engage with what's happening in like the physical neighborhood around me. You present in your work attention as a kind of drug. Um, so are you suggesting that in the pandemic we are kicking or we will kick this drug? Well, you mean, do you mean that we'll kick tech? Well, kick our addiction to tech, maybe not tech itself. Well, no, I mean, tech is obviously, it's here to stay. It's a part of our infrastructure. It's the basis of our social life now and our livelihoods. But I think it's never been more clear, at least for me. And I'm curious what you think, Andrew. I'm going to turn the table on you in a second because I feel the limitations of tech have never been more obvious in that, you know, you're missing your friends, you get on a Zoom call, and yet it is so profoundly unsatisfying, is it not? I mean, it's the lack of in-person presence, the lack of the sensory contact, the lack of physical intimacy. Um, it It just screams, it's so visceral and so apparent. And this is why I think that as soon as the world loosens, I think we might sort of rush away from our screens and kind of never forget this particular lesson. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting idea. I'm sort of torn between two visions of the future. The first, and I outline this in my Lit Hub piece, um, the first is essentially, as, as I put it, software eating the world and Silicon Valley coming to quite literally rule our lives in, in every sense, from politics to economics to culture. And the second is your vision of this being the moment where we're we're woken up to this nightmare of technological addiction and come to realize the essential value of the physical in all its complexity and all its beauty. Um, I, I'm guessing perhaps both those visions in one way or the other will come true in the post-pandemic world. Yeah, I mean, and I think another thing about this moment that's interesting is that nothing that was inevitable now feels inevitable. So, I mean, I would have said before this, you know, we're never going to get away from our internet addiction. It's sort of, it's, we've lost the battle in a way. Um, but I, I actually think that a lot of, a lot of assumptions are kind of eroding at the moment. What kind of assumptions? I don't know. I feel like whatever we thought was guaranteed, you know, um, whatever kind of behavior, whatever, habits, whatever personal habits felt so set in stone. And I'm, I'm only thinking right now in terms of our relationships to, to the to online life. But I'm sure there are so many others where we just sort of took for granted, you know, yes, I have a habit of spending six hours online per day. And, and, you know, let's face it, that's not going anywhere. I just feel like there's, there's a shift in what, in what we now think is possible. We didn't know it was possible to put our lives on pause. Yeah, and I think the other thing that's weird about the post-pandemic age is we just took the physical so much for granted. You in Manhattan, me in California, we took our restaurants, our stores, our concert halls, our sports stadiums for granted. And and presumably in the post-pandemic age, we won't. We will come to appreciate them and indeed relish them. And I only hope that, you know, we remember because I feel like we're notorious for briefly appreciating and then quickly forgetting. So how can we remember, Katie? Oh, oh, well, I mean, I guess humans are, are sort of, we adapt so quickly that, of course, we then sort of forget, we forget. But I hope, I hope we try to remember. 
But I mean, I've already been surprised because I, I would have thought that in a way when this started, I thought, oh, you know, I wonder what will happen to all the sort of like culture wars raging on Twitter, you know, during the pandemic. And I, like, in other words, I thought maybe we, we would have different perspective um, on things that, that haven't actually seemed to go away. Have you noticed that? Yeah, and also thinking about this, what I've noticed, uh, or what I'm thinking about now, is that the America, of course, is divided into two worlds, our coastal elites, uh, our, our networked uh, culture and community, and then the world of middle America, which tend to vote for Trump, and there's this huge cultural divide. And what seems to be interesting is that the physical is being embraced more by middle America than by the coastal elites who are all happily and obediently sheltering in place. And indeed, the great debate in America at the moment seems to be between uh, those who want to shelter in place and those who who think that it's somehow un-American. Right, exactly. It is interesting, isn't it? Well, it's interesting in the sense that we coastal elites tend to think of ourselves as the um, as the most enlightened and advanced, but perhaps it's the uh, it's Trump's America who get it more than we do. I mean, I guess it, we'll have to see what what the numbers and what just what the infection rates say in the in the weeks to come. I mean, it's just so unpredictable, isn't it? Yeah. How do you think? freedom and attention are bound up with one another. I know a lot of your work is about, one way or the other, addiction, which of course undermines freedom. Yeah. Um, I The book that I just published last month, Attention, A Love Story, is kind of, it's like a kaleidoscopic view of attention, um, thinking about it from a bunch of different angles. And one of them is um, my 10-year-long addiction to an attention pill called Adderall. Um, you know, this pill that sort of promises bionic focus and kind of, you know, superhuman attention in a way um, that I personally found sort of took away a lot of true, what I think of as my true attention, my true capacity to absorb the world around me. Um, and I think, you know, the same can be said for so many of the aspects of online life that have a way of just like hijacking our minds um, and making us these little passive sort of zombies. Sometimes I think it's sort of akin to that. And um, it's, it's an interesting question because I, I, I think that like when you assert a kind of sense of agency or control, you're taking back a lot of freedom from those sort of Silicon Valley overlords um, who have designed these programs specifically to play into our brain's vulnerabilities. So agency and attention are opposites in a way, or at least if we're going to free ourselves from the control of the, of the platforms, we need to uh, what li- liberate our attention from the screen. Is that right? I mean, I think so. I mean, I think back to that great William James quote. I mean, this is from the 19th century where, you know, where he said so famously, my experience is what I agree to attend to. And I mean, that that's such a that's such a simple statement. It's such a profound idea that like ultimately, how do you define your life? It's really by where you where you pay attention. It's as simple as that. So I think with 
by mindlessly handing over our attention to our screens. It's sort of like you, it feels like a very harmless little act, you know, but those minutes and those hours stack up and suddenly you look around and you think, you know, where have I been spending the bulk of my time and my sort of, you know, my, my mental energy for the last five or 10 years. And in my, I mean, in my case, I'm, I'm sort of ashamed when I think of, to that stockpile of hours that are sort of utterly wasted online. Some people have, have, have seen your work as, as generational in the sense that your own relationship with Adderall and the struggle for attention is a feature of a generation that grew up on, on, on social media. Do you think that's true? You mean the desire to take Adderall? Well, the desire to take Adderall, to, to be more attentive, and at the same time, to want to liberate oneself from the tyranny of the screen. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like I'm in this in-between generation because I'm 37. And so technically I'm a millennial, although I don't really kind of identify as such. Um, and, you know, when I was growing up, there wasn't, I mean, I, I think there was, there was this, I, I was in college when Facebook was invented. So I was, I was Mark Zuckerberg's age, essentially. Um, so I feel like we're the sort of, my group is the sort of in-between group that remembers the pleasure of focus before the splintering of attention. But yet we find ourselves now as addicted to the screen as, as anybody. Um, but I don't know. I've, I think, I think that humans of, of every age seem kind of sucked in by, by the tyranny of, of the screen, Andrew, don't you? I mean, I certainly, I, I mean, my mother is as often on her iPhone as I am. Mm, well, it depends how much you're on your iPhone. We're not able to look at one another now. Would that help or not in terms of this conversation? It might help. I don't know. I'd be curious to see what room you're in. Well, it's a very bright one in Berkeley, California. What kind of room are you in? Oh, I'm, um, I'm in a very pleasant room right now that's like uncharacteristically orderly. Talk a little bit more, though, Casey, about your own relationship with Adderall and how you dealt with it, because I think it's very instructive for for some of our listeners. When I when I was handed a blue pill, I was 18 years old and Adderall had only been on the market for four years in the United States. So it wasn't then this was the year 2000. It wasn't yet kind of like the ubiquitous, you know, substance that it is now on college campuses. Um, and I had come to my friend and said, I've got this essay due tomorrow. I'll never get it done. She handed it to me and she said, try this. And um, it was this like ecstatic night of, you know, just sort of intense focus, but the pleasure of concentration. That was the thing is that Adderall infused this incredible pleasure into the very, into the act of focus itself. Um, and that was that was such a seductive gateway for me with this attention pill. And I wound up spending my entire 20s on this drug. You know, I finally went and got diagnosed as ADHD, even though, you know, I most likely was not ADHD. Um, and um, just basically, in a way, chasing that that first night's experience, which I never got back again, not exactly not the sheer pleasure of it. Um, And in fact, just got sort of farther and farther away from real authenticity and real creativity and real emotion. 
which, you know, I think being on amphetamines all the time can really do to you. Um, and finally, when I was 30, um, my first book was canceled by its publisher. And it was like this devastating kind of what they say, like hitting rock bottom moment where I thought like, I've just, I've totally sabotaged my own career by taking a pill that makes me, you know, kind of fake or false because I can't think clearly when I'm on it. And that was the prompt um, for getting off of it. And that was kind of the background, the psychological background for why I wanted to dig into the subject of attention at book length, um, because I realized I was so susceptible to this universal desire to really kind of bolster our, our glitchy, all too human attention, no matter, no matter what it takes. What's the difference in the Adderall world and the post-Adderall world in terms of relationships? You, you write a lot about the internal self and you explore yourself, but how did it impact on your relationships with your family, with your friends, with, uh, I, I don't know if you were married at the time, now I know you are married, or you didn't have any children. Did it intensify conversation or did it make everything solitary? I think it really, that's such a, that, first of all, that's such a profound question, but I think it really hijacked intimacy and thwarted it in a lot of ways. Um, and I was living with a boyfriend right around the height of this addiction, like my mid to late 20s, and he just couldn't stand Adderall. Um, he couldn't stand the effect of Adderall on me and on our relationship, but had no idea what to do. And I think you know, it's sort of like having this like third party in a relationship because it makes it makes you other than who you actually are. Um, so it's sort of it also I think when I was on Adderall, and I think this is probably true for a lot of people who have some kind of substance a problem. You don't feel like you really need love and closeness and intimacy in the same way because you have this beloved substance, you know, Um so I think it really took getting off of it to be, to kind of, I, I mean, when I was 30, I, I was so behind in a, in a way, in a way I remember thinking when my friend, the friend who first gave me the Adderall got married at 30, I went to her wedding and I thought, how is it possible that she's getting married? Like the idea of getting married, even though we were 30 felt insane to me because it had been so long since I had been, you know, even in the mindset to even think about wanting a relationship in that way. So I think it really was getting off of it that sort of deepened all my friendships and made it even possible to truly fall in love with somebody. Do you think that drugs like Adderall are the kind of coastal elites equivalent to the, the opiate addiction of middle America? You know, that's an interesting question. And a part of me is tempted to answer yes. But I also think that Adderall is readily given to children in areas where there's not a lot of um, resources, like in, in terms of mental health care. And so it's like the easy solution is just to medicate them with amphetamine. So it's not quite this picture of elitism that, you know, that one might think. Um, but I, I'd, I'd really be curious to look at the data on, on it. Um, I'm, Casey, uh, I'm particularly interested in the impact of Adderall on, on, on your experience as not only a writer, but a reader, did it allow you to appreciate books more or less? 
Andrew, I love these questions, really. I mean, I feel like your questions are just sort of capturing the exact texture of this experience in a way. Um, Because, I mean, at first it helped me, you know, with the difficult texts that you encounter in university. Like I remember reading Immanuel Kant in the Brown Library and just like, be feeling ecstatic that I could, I could sort of. And just to clarify, that is not that that's Brown University Library. That's not just the the color brown library, right? <laughs> exactly. Although it may have been brown, come to think of it. But I mean, again, I mean, reading was one of those things where oh, I thought Adderall was helping, but ultimately it wasn't because actually I can't remember much of what I read while I was on it. Probably the best the best person to read on Adderall is what, Kant or Heidegger? The harder, the, the more you think you understand it. Exactly. And, and what impact did it have on, on reading simpler books, maybe simple novels or, or books which require not so much of a, a technical understanding or concentration, but just a kind of humanness to appreciate? No, exactly. That was one of the great revelations of getting off was the, the sort of the this huge, this sort of swell of emotion and feeling that returns to you. And that is, it, that's, that's such a wonderful, vital part of reading, of reading literature, is the feelings, the feelings that come up when you do. And I think I'd actually really been missing out on that by taking, by being constantly on these pills. So finally, Casey, uh, you're, you're off the pills. We're in the pandemic. Some people are addicted to tech. Some people are probably still on Adderall. What should they be reading that might help them with one kind of addiction or another as we're all sheltering inside? For some reason, the book that has been the sort of perfect fit um, for me during this pandemic has been this book, Ducks Newburyport by Lucy Ellman which is a thousand pages long and it's essentially one sentence and it's this, this sort of consciousness of this, this housewife in Ohio, this sort of moment to moment sort of feeling state of everything that flashes across her mind. And I can't explain why, but check it out because it sort of soothes and elevates in this crazy, crazy moment. What was that called again? Do it repeat it That's- for everybody. Newburyport, and you said it's it's one sentence in a thousand pages, it's so there are no one sentence. It sounds a little bit like Kant or Heidegger. <laughs> it's so much more pleasurable than that. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.